Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 500 with my return guest, Jordan Reed. Holy shit. It seems like it was just... 499 episodes ago, and here we are at 500. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Let's cut to the chase. I'm not a therapist. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. Um, the website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles you can follow the show at. I hope that my brain is together enough to... Uh, put out a good show today because I have been playing the game Civilization almost around the clock. And I can, I can feel it. It, it. It's almost like I'm j- disappearing down a well. It's. I love the dopamine rush that I get when I'm playing Civilization. But when you're playing for eight hours at a time, it's, it's, it, you're getting high. Essentially, you're, you're getting high. And I don't know what to do because there are times when nothing else interests me. And I I know underneath it, there's something I don't want to feel, whether it's the state of the world, you know, my personal growth, boredom from the pandemic, just getting tired of Groundhog Day. I, I don't know, but uh, I guess this is a cry for help. It's not, but I'm sure there are those of you out there that are just running the wheels off of some mechanism that soothes you and turning it into something that is draining you. So that's what I wanted to do for the 500th episode, is I just wanted to lay down in front of you and say, I am a mess. I don't feel like a mess, but that... That voice in our head that tells us we're doing life wrong, 
it's always at one volume or another. And I would say mine was at about a three for, for a while until I started kind of obsessively playing this game. And now it's probably at about a, I don't know, a five or a six. And I'm sure, I'm sure you guys can relate to that. What do I want to read? This is from the survey, uh, the pandemic survey. And this, these are people's answers to the question, have there been things that have made you laugh or smile during the pandemic? Uh, one person writes, yes, I had a very corny dance party that was great. The kids always say funny things. They put stickers and band-aids on my back. They embrace small moments and experience true joy and encourage me to do the same. Kids are really the greatest gift. I don't know why we grow up and how we force the kid out of everyone, but I wish we didn't. Well, that makes me feel better about playing eight hours of civilization. Another person writes, I put up these, quote, happy sun and happy snail stickers around the house in secret places. This wasn't so this was so, if you're having a bad day, you'll see them when you least expect it, like inside a cabinet, under a desk, in the closet. I laughed so much when my father and my boyfriend were trying to find all of them. Another person writes, my neighbor puts hearts in her window. I noticed them and smiled. Then I made some hearts to put in my window so she could smile too. I've got to assume those aren't human hearts because that would not make me smile. I would, but I would give my neighbor kudos on going through the effort of removing the human heart from the victim. Another person writes, one of my cats was playing with the other and made a leap that was at least eight feet long. It was super impressive and I'm glad I got to see it. He has never done anything like that before and it was great to see him having fun leaping and playing. I do love those moments when, when, dogs or cats do something physically impressive, especially if it's coming from a place of just joy and excitement. <clears throat> Somebody writes, having more time with my kids means more times for those you planned talks where my kids tell me what they're thinking of or dreaming about. That is so awesome. Turns out my kids are really fucking smart and really fucking hilarious, which I already knew, but now I have an even better appreciation for. I love that one, man. God, I love seeing parents being present with their kids. This person writes, practical jokes at work, like replacing the white stuff in an Oreo with toothpaste. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. That is fantastic. This person writes, I had a session with my therapist over Zoom and brought up codependency. I said that I came from a long line of fixers. Then I said, I don't get what was so bad about codependency because you want to make everyone feel better. What a monster. My therapist laughed but explained codependency to me. I'm sure I've shared this joke before. I, I can't remember who I heard it from, but... Uh, they said, uh, what's the last thing to go through a codependent's mind right before they die? Someone else's life. <laughs> Gonna love that. Uh, this person writes, when my baby is so angry, she cries and farts at the same time. <laughs> that would make me laugh. 
Uh, and then this person wrote, my mom bought a water gun so that she can shoot squirrels off of her bird feeders from her office window. Sometimes when she's on a video call with her coworkers, she'll stop to shoot down a squirrel. When I drove to, and then and not, uh, a separate one, when I drove to school to pick up my cap and gown, all of my teachers were standing in the parking lot cheering and holding up class of 2020 signs, and I started happy crying. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you guys for those. Those are so good. This is, um, and we'll get to the, the survey. I just have a, a couple of things that, that I'm too excited to share with you that can't wait until after the interview. Uh, this one is, it's a, from the love survey, but it's, it's fucking heavy. And uh, this is filled out by Jellyfish Jane. And she writes, I love when people ask me about my stillborn baby. How was the labor? How much did he weigh? How did you pick his name? Who did he look like? And so on. It makes me happy when people acknowledge that he existed. That one really opened, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That one really opened my eyes because it would have never occurred to me to ask those questions of someone. The only thing I would have thought to communicate is, I'm so sorry, you know, is there anything I can do? Um, you know, the usual trite stuff, but yeah. Wow. Uh, this is from the love survey and this person writes, I love waking up sober every morning and not feeling guilty and dehydrated. I love the way willow trees look. I love dancing on my own in my living room as if I were filming a music video. I love lying in bed with tea and a book before the working day begins. I love congratulating people. I love growing seedlings and soda cans on my windowsill. I love how cumin spice smells. I love when people are unexpectedly polite. I love how it feels to untense my shoulders when I've had them so high without realizing. I love being among tall trees. I just thought of one. I love when I'm playing hockey and I'm the next per I'm on the bench and I'm the next person in line to go out on the ice and somebody coming off the ice calls me by my name. It calls me Polly. I don't know when 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 my teammates call me Polly, I just love it so much. There's a pickup that I that I play at, which is, you know, just like a scrimmage. And when I started playing at this, I only knew one or two people. And I just felt uh, like such an outsider. And now, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two later, they all call me Polly. And it feels so good. It, it, it's such a simple thing. And it just reminds me that we, on some level, we all just want to be seen. We all just want to be loved. It sounds so obvious, but um, the feeling I get when somebody says that um, it just reminds me how <laughs> desperate I still am to be seen and loved this episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. 
a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. Uh, Try online counseling. If you haven't tried it yet, pause this podcast right now and go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and continue to advertise with us. Um, I love not having to leave my home. Um, BetterHelp also uh, is now able to offer services to kids between the age of 13 and 17. It used to be that you had to be 18 or over to use BetterHelp, but now they uh, have expanded and they have teencounseling.com. And so uh, if you go to BetterHelp and you you know put in your, you could go straight to teen counseling or you could go to BetterHelp and then they'll redirect you based on your age. They'll get your parental consent and uh, okay. And then good things will ensue and everybody will go home happy. Um, yeah, check it out. BetterHelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire. If they have a counselor they think is a good fit, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it is good for you. And then finally, this is from the love survey. And uh, this person calls themselves Paul. I think we all know that I'm far too indecisive and anxious to pick a clever name. And they write, I love when I buy a book used and it has a note or message written inside of it. Here is a book for you to cherish forever or some other such thing. It's nice to think that things have a history. Recently, I opened up a book I bought from the Salvation Army and saw this message scrawled on the title page. I am so in love with you. Hopefully this inspires future endeavors and ideas. Or you could just keep it safe in your butthole. Merry Christmas, love Lily. It made me smile. Also made me want to disinfect it. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. 
everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and let them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> here with Jordan Reed, who is a return guest. Um, you are the author of ramshackleglam.com. Mm-hmm. Written a shitload of books, a couple <laughs> since we've last talked. And uh, the Digital Detox book, it's, it's part of a series? Yeah, we have a series called the Big Activity Book Series. So we have one for pregnant people, one for anxious people. This one is for digital detox. We have one for divorced people coming out next year. So yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. Uh, do you have one for people who have given up hope for the political future of our country? <laughs> That's next. Just <laughs> It's just an empty page, and then the last page says, kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think that would sell. Uh, you're a mother of two. Uh, you're divorced. Uh, let's let's first talk about the the book that you wrote called uh, "Seriously, What the Fuck Is Wrong with Men?" Am I getting the- that? Is that is the correct title? Yes, it's yeah. WTF on the cover to right. make Amazon happy. Yeah, <sighs> I was curious about it when I saw the title because I was like, "Oh, is this going to be a sweeping indictment of <laughs> all of us? Is this going to make me mad?" Uh, and I read the the foreword to it, and it uh, took took away any exception that I felt like I I might have had to it. Even though I knew that you didn't mean generally when people write about that, they don't mean all men, all women, uh, etc. But I was curious to see how broad of a brush you were going to paint this with. Uh, do you want to read the, the sure. to Sure. So, it? yeah, it was uh, the intro I put on after I wrote the book because it was bothering me. Um, you know, when I mentioned the title to a couple of male friends of mine, they, they bristled. Yeah. And I said, well, no, it's not about like you. And they were like, well, it is. And I said, no, no, no. I'm not talking about individual men. I'm talking about a larger culture that creates a situation in which virtually all women I know look at this book and they go, oh yeah, that, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. So the disclaimer that I put on says, it's a picture of me. Mm -hmm. Hi, before we get started, let's do a disclaimer. Fun stuff. This highly scientific, 100% fact-based exploration of male psychology was based entirely on highly scientific, 100% fact-based conversations with my friends. None of whom hate men. Some of them even report loving one or many. Imagine. And of course, in every population, there are outliers. You may even know, you may even personally know a few of these shining beacons of humanity. For example, your Postmates guy, your dad, your brother. So some men are great, maybe even most men, but it's still a fact that not a single fucking one of them can successfully put a dirty sock into a hamper. It's just a fact. One of the things that that occurred. Well, well, let's talk about some of the things that uh, you cover in this book that make you say, "Seriously, what the fuck?" Okay, so what I said just now, essentially, that it, this is not about a man. This is about the the culture that has mm-hmm. been created, and 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 the culture. You know, where emotional labor falls 
99% on women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have in here, these are not examples of helping. So helping in my marriage, which I am now divorced, was one of my trigger words. When my husband would, when I would ask him to do something, first of all, having to ask is a problem in itself because that's putting the emotional labor of the asking on the woman. But then, you know, if he does it, he's helping me. Um, you know, instead of taking responsibility and being part of a right. team. And again, this is not an indictment of him. It It is something that I witnessed in most of my friends' heterosexual marriages. Um, you know, I can't speak for uh, the gay community in terms of how I think there is a, a significant component of this has to do with um, the traditional, you know, ways that men and women are expected right. to operate. In if I go to work, you have to do the rest. Right, except we you, wor- we work now. Right. <laughs> right, we work a lot. Right. So you know, these are not examples of helping. Caring for children to whom you contributed genetic material, not helping. Buying food that no one but you wants to eat. Washing clothing that you yourself made smell like a geriatric camel, and fixing things that need to be fixed in the house that you yourself live in, not helping. And yet, that is, it seems to me, the prevalent attitude that I have experienced myself. My personal opinion is there's one of two things at work there. One is that their standard for what they want the house to look like <laughs> is lower than their, than their so. partners. Yes. Yes. And the other is that they're clueless uh, 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 about what their responsibility is. And, and I would even add a third one, which is that they're not fucking listening. That mm-hmm. it, kind of like corporations, they don't do what is the right thing to do. They do what they can get away with. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it, it occurred to me sort of while I was writing this, I wrote this piece on Ramshackle Glam that was about why I got divorced. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost never occurred to me before. And again, it it wasn't about him. He's wonderful. Really. It wasn't my marriage that was the problem. It was all of the marriages that I saw around me. Um, You know, when I was married, I worked. I made more than my husband most years. And that's not, again, an indictment of him. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And I also did virtually everything with the house, with the bills, with the kids, with the food, everything. You know, let's call it 85%. Right. Um, And at some point, you you hit a, a place where you are tiptoeing around egos on top of all of the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then you you know, you know, don't want to have a fight because a fight is just another thing that you have to do. And you right. already have to do too much. Right. And then you snap. Or I snapped. Anyway. Right. Did you ever have sit-downs with him to highlight that the, the, these weren't just minuscule things, that these were, these were part of a larger problem that were pushing you away? I think that the conversation, there has been so much truly excellent conversation happening in the media um, in the past couple of years that that would have been an easier thing to do now, mm-hmm. to say, here is all of this literature on emotional labor. These are facts. This is what's happening in our culture. But I don't think I had that language at the time. I just had me being mad right, and expressing it poorly. Over and over and over. And what a great example of uh, how just issues just in many ways get swept under the carpet and then your marriage is just a big lumpy carpet that 
you just keep tripping over and nobody mm-hmm. talks about it and you both kind of kid yourself into thinking, well, that's the last time that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think marriage in its current incarnation is completely unsustainable for many women. Um, and also we have to remember that when marriage was invented, we lived until about 30. I could have stayed married until I was 30. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Why are having those conversations so difficult for, for both people? I think they're so fraught with, you know, decades of learned behavior. My mother, when I was, um, I remember, I don't know, a couple years after I got married, I was complaining about exactly this. And she said, but Jordan, that's, that's how it is. You know, men do what they do and women do the rest. And so I had these conflicting voices in my head saying, you know, on the one hand, this is not a sustainable situation for me. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. I cannot live like this. Um, and then the other hand, I have this voice that I grew up with, not just my mother, everyone saying, but that's how guys are. Silly men. That's just what they do. And that's demeaning to men. You know, that that's in addition to being, you know, mm-hmm. not super fair for women. Yeah, I. I have a friend who I, I love. He's a great guy, and he complains about his wife not having sex with right. him. And he fits a lot of the categories mm-hmm. that you put in there. Sometimes his language in describing a woman will sound kind of patronizing. Mm. And I've debated on whether or not to bring that topic up and say, might it be related Mm. to this? I wonder how many people who are in sexless marriages are actually just living on a lumpy carpet. Yeah. And neither of them want to deal with it or they're not truly listening. Well, if you know, from the woman's perspective, you know, you're dealing with your massive burden of emotional labor, plus the societal burden of, of course, being skinny and beautiful and hairless and eternally 19 years old. And then, you know, egos and issues. And like, of course, you don't want to sleep with your house. Like who, 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 under what circumstances is that sexy or fun? It's very hard for resentment to make you orgasm. Yes, I I do find that. (laughs) It's a tricky situation. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you have a, a boy i do what are your thoughts around his generation and, and and him growing up and do you have conversations with him about this vestige yes. of the 50s uh guy carrying the briefcase coming home and expecting to be waited on yes uh from the moment he was born that was something that was on my mind um it's so easy to slip into my daughter. My five-year-old daughter loves to clean. She loves to cook, loves it. I don't know why he hates it. It's a, it's a struggle. It is so easy. It is so hard to force a child to do something when there's already another one that wants to help you out. Right. And I have to actively combat that. Um, you know, also my, I had an interesting conversation with my son where he said, well, mom, why are all these shirts that say like girl power and like girls rule the world 
and I can't wear that. Like I can't wear a boys rule the world. And I was like, oh. Fair question. It's a very fair question for an eight-year-old to ask because right. he because and I he's like, well, but I'm a boy, and you're saying straight white men have been, you know, kind of historically a, a bit of an ish. Mm -hmm. And are you saying that I'm bad? And it is a it is a a challenging situation for those of us trying to raise feminist boys. Um, and I have to explain, you are not bad. The culture surrounding straight white masculinity has become toxic and part of your job is to be an example of of the opposite kind of man right and the girls rule um is it girls rule the world or girls rule oh yeah, well you know yeah. like there's a million different like, right you know and i think explaining to him that this is a reaction to the patriarchy rather than a uh you know, saying that this is, uh, that, that women are better than men, just kind of like, Hey, it is kind of a way of saying we're equal. Right. It's like that. Did you see that video that was trying to explain, um, and it was all these people lined up and the guy says, now, if your parents are still married, take three steps forward. And then, you know, if you went to school every day and like, didn't have to worry about lunch, take five steps forward. And, and by the end, it shows the racial disparity in terms of privilege. And then he says, now run the race. Have you seen that video? No, it oh, it's great. extraordinary. It just shows um, certain sectors of society have a heads up. They have a head right. start. Of course they do. We know this. Um, and I think that's a helpful way to explain it to kids. Actually, like it's it's like you you, you got ahead in the race just by being born. And a, a lot of people don't understand that because they think that that means that they were given special treatment rather than the, the reality, which is they just didn't have the hurdles mm -hmm. that that other people face. And it's very hard to recognize something that is an absence. Absence of, of the thing versus the yes, yes, very. And especially for a child. Right. Um, I talk a lot, my... Um, the editorial director of my site has two sons and I have a son and and we talk a lot about about all of these issues. And so I have this book, Seriously, What the Fuck is Wrong with Men, sitting on my counter and my son sees it and he's like, you know, mom. And and it is it's it's. I, I do. I do think it's a delicate, a delicate balance, um, especially especially with small children. And I think the emphasis is just on saying there is a culture that has created this sentiment. Our job is to fight against that, and you are part of the solution. You will be part of the solution. I think the 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 Me Too movement is, in, in addition to being something that was a long time coming and very necessary and a sea change, hopefully, I think it is going to help in the step forward of just listening, mm -hmm. which to me is is the problem. Because what is your investment for listening if you already are the top dog culturally? Right. Why? Why would right. you? Yeah, and on the, on the topic of listening, I think that there's a lot of, especially now with um, <laughs> everything going on, there is so much shaming of 
uh, you're not doing it the way I do it. So people are shaming each other, which is shutting down conversation. Because it's so bad. It's so bad. I mean, even down to like the mask wearing, right? So I was reading an article this morning that was like, it was likening it to trying to get gay men to wear condoms in, I guess it would have been the 80s. Shame as a selling point does not work. Fear does not work. Mm-mm. Empathy, conversation, listening, that's what works. And I think we're just seeing so much shaming um, in so many directions right now because of these hard conversations that are that are wonderful that we're having. But I don't know. I worry that we're approaching them the wrong way and creating additional divisiveness. Sometimes I imagine myself having conversations about um, kind of the societal political reality we find ourselves in with somebody who is the polar opposite of me and i imagine can't you just go on twitter (laughs) that's why i avoid social media except to post stuff about the podcast Uh, i get on it as soon as possible and i get off it Uh, as, as soon as possible uh and i have a hard time not having that fantasy lead to me pummeling them in the face mm-hmm. because it, the desire for that type of victory and shaming and humiliation of course i think is so natural for us because it's it's uh in some ways in our caveman brain a solution Right. And especially right now, look at what we're, we're, we're in full fight or flight. Like we are, what's it called? Your snake brain, your lizard brain. Lizard brain. We're full in the lizard brain right now. Yeah. I mean, I am, (laughs) I'm primal instinct over here. (laughs) And it's really shocking how, how divisive it's. Everything. It's become. It, you kind of expected that the other side would be listening a bit. But no. they're just going deeper into their corner yeah. and becoming angrier and angrier. But um, I, but I venture that's because they don't feel listened to either. Yeah, I mean, like, what, so in my own attempts to educate myself about Me Too movement, about um, LGBTQ community, Black Lives Matter, I have found that I am so anxious about using the wrong verbiage mm-hmm. um, because I don't want to be shamed when I'm trying, Ditto. just trying to understand and do better. Um, And I understand that that's also not the issue is my white fragility. Um, But I think that the delicacy that, that they don't want to be shamed. They don't want to say, you know, if they open their mind, uh, leave in a little crack and then they say the wrong thing or it's not enough. And then someone on the left it's like no you're wrong you that's like Mm. you know and then that shuts them down Mm -hmm. so i would imagine that people uh, are feeling like they're locking themselves into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller boxes because to open it even a crack lets in so much that it's terrifying yeah i i i agree i think that's also the case with the parent who ignores the child coming forward and saying that they were sexually violated by an adult. They don't want to open the door to what happened to them. Mm -mm. And so they shut it down, you know, oh, that happened years ago, you know, let it go, or you're lying or 
whatever the reaction is. It's Some, too painful. Something that I, I started seeing happening on YouTube a while ago are videos where it's uh, black people reacting to things that are part of, you know, for lack of a better word, white culture. Uh, classically white music. Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, and, I remember those. And they become extremely popular. And, and what I take out of that is that there are a lot of white people that desperately want to be accepted culturally by black people, that they feel lame in a lot of Interesting. ways. And I think for some people, whether it's conscious or not, I think that is at play, that they feel like they are not cool or viewed mm -hmm. as not cool. And so that creates a resentment. Not so then smart enough, not well-informed enough. I mean, you see those videos of comedians going up to Trump supporters and just shutting, I mean, shutting them down with right. a lack of knowledge. And that's humiliating. That's humiliating. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, that doesn't make the Trump supporter want to have a conversation that makes them feel ashamed and it makes them I cannot believe I'm sitting here defending Trump supporters. <laughs> I'm right. not defending them. I'm saying You're defending I, their humanity. I'm defend I'm saying that sh the uh, that this culture of shame is not does not feel to me to be the solution. Yeah. Let's talk about your uh digital detox. Don't you need uh, one? Buck. I kind of already do that already. Oh, that's um, good. Actually, that's not true because I'm on my it, I I avoid social media, but I do find my nose buried in my iPad playing, you know, online poker, not for money, for play chips, uh -huh. uh, words with friends, um, well, watching those, Netflix. Those are health. Those are healthy-ish. So I have, so when my, this book came out, the big activity book for digital detox, it was um, like three or four weeks ago, meaning in the middle of lockdown global pandemic when the only way that we're interacting with each other is through our phones. Yeah. So it was an ideal timing, you yeah. might say. Yeah. Uh, it was a tough sell. Yeah. But even in the month, so I, and I felt it too. I was like, I'm not putting down my phone. This is my, I mean, I'm obsessed. Like mm -hmm. I'm going full on into the addiction. I'm like, I might as well just super glue it to my face. <laughs> but in the past, I would say three weeks, I have felt in me anyway, a, like a massive shift where I am absolutely saturated. It hurts my brain to take in any more news. I was doing that doom scrolling thing. Do you know what that is? No. Uh, just just looking angrily at your phone and just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and what's right. next, what's next? And I was sleeping with my phone under my pillow so I could check it in the middle of the night just, you know, because if, wow. if I'm not on top of it, the world might end. Oh my God. I know. Um, that's bad. Yeah. Real bad. So, but it, but it felt necessary. It felt like every five minutes, some massive news story broke and it was like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit from every direction. Um, and I, I personally have reached my absolute saturation point where I want to just read historical fiction and do my puzzles and not look at my news app. I don't care anymore. It's all bad. I know it. I got it. And <laughs> point we, made. And we will the the big news will filter to us through conversations exactly. with friends, stuff like that. I I often ask my girlfriend, uh, you know, what's going on with the pandemic 
laws locally because right. she stays on top of it. And is that me being a lazy citizen? Yeah, probably. But I, I also am realistic about how much battery I have in my yeah. soul and my brain. It's not being lazy to get the key information that you need without all of the fluff around it. You're not you're not saying I don't care what the laws are. You're saying just just give give me the thing I need to know. Yeah. You know. So has control always been uh, an issue for you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it is for most people. But uh, you know what you described about the the, the phone uh, that sounds pretty intense. Is Having it, it under I, your I pillow? I think I yeah. thought that was kind of normal. It's not. Maybe definitely not. <laughs> I don't I have not heard of other people doing that, but I've never asked that question. It's something that I... Or like right next to the bed. Yeah. Well, mine is next to the bed because I'm charging it, but Mm -hmm. I don't get up in the... In the middle of the night to look at it. I don't, I don't look at the news. I absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know which is, which is, is there one way that's better than the other? Maybe it's, it's, your way, your way. But I, I don't know. You also have kids. You have a responsibility to be informed for them. And this, maybe this is making excuses for you, but it, it, I want to know what's going on. Is there something going on underneath that that is, um, driving that? Has it been there? Mm-hmm. Was it there before this? Does it, does, uh, do people tell you to chill out or stop being so controlling in other areas of your, of your life? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, uh, I am 100% the, as my ex-husband would tell you very readily, I need to control shit. But, um, yeah, personally, my reaction to the, the global crisis that we're in right now has been, um, to go, to fold in on myself, um, to an extent that is, I just didn't see coming. Like, um, I'm an extroverted introvert. Do you know that? It's like, uh, I get tired before a social situation. Like I almost had to nap on the way over here. So I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to interact with a human being. Oh my God. I'm Um, the the same way. When I saw, I had, I I saw, I had a recording for today. My, my stomach dropped. Is it the interaction? Yes. Yeah. It's not you because I, I, clearly I had you on as a guest a a year ago and wanted to have you back on because, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. So it's, it's not that I, I, and I think that just highlights the fact that I'm anxious about social interaction. Right. And how, and hasn't it gotten, this has affected us socially anxious people. I don't know if I'll ever be able to function in a bar ever again. I mean, it, it feels like, are you kidding me? Like surrounded by new people, making small talk. Uh, I don't, that button that or that part of my brain, I think has been sort of taken out. And especially having to talk loudly. That, yeah. That's just another level of exhaustion uh, to it. But um were there, do you ever kind of look at your past or your childhood and say, what was there events? Were there events or something that led me to feel terrified by my lack of control in the world? Oh my goodness. Did were, There must did, be. <laughs> did you have a parent who was a, a, an addict or 
an alcoholic or a rager? No, no. I had, um, I was raised to be very, well, I was perfect. Very, was like, there if some I, conditional love? If I got, oh, you think? No, yeah. I, yeah, I had to do the things I had to, yeah, of course. I gotcha. Um, if I get an A minus, that's not enough. It has to be an A, and that's, that's silly. But it, I also learned that if I acted, I learned there was a way to act to get love or approval that wasn't necessarily having anything to do with how I wanted to act or what I felt. And I've learned that very much so over the years. And that's been something I've been actively trying to break down in the past maybe year or so with therapy. Um, This feeling of if I show, if I do the real thing, the real me, no one's going to love that. Like, no way. So... Yeah, and and it and it's it's like this element of manipulation. Like I do know how to who you be need charming. to be. I, yeah, like I know how to how to do the thing that you know in a party or whatever. But it's not me. It has nothing to do with who I am. What I want to do is go in a corner and read a book and not be there. I'm sorry, I don't want to be there. Right. <laughs> I don't even want to go read a book in the corner. My ex, uh, when we were still married. Uh, one night we had another couple over and she goes are you actually reading a fucking book right now and i was yeah i, I was that. and i and i couldn't even see how how rude that was I, I you know what i me too i grew up my first of all my dad when we would go to like you know a christmas party he would bring his well when oh, when i was older and there were computers he would bring his computer and just sit there in the corner with a computer or a book when i was younger and I always thought that looked really nice. Um, and I still crave that. That's all. I just, I like being alone together. Mm-hmm. Like having someone else in the room, but you're not interacting. But oh, there. yeah. That was, that was my dad, is he wanted to be surrounded by people he could ignore. And, I, and I'm the same way. It's why I like when I do uh, work on my laptop, going to a crowded coffee shop and just feeling the stream of life around me, mm-hmm. but just praying Nobody I know walks in. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the worst. Right. Put that one on the pain scale. It's like a 20. How do we, we navigate this so that we can become the more authentic version of, our, of ourselves? Because deep down, I think we all want to be seen for who we are. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, how do you guide your child and, you know, Keep them motivated, but not make it to a thing where it, it feels like conditional love. And is that something that you consider as a parent? Um, yeah. And I notice that I do that with my kids. I notice that, you know, when I, I see it, I see them learning that these are the things that I can do to make mom happy. Mm-hmm. And I give them really immediate positive reinforcement when they do those things. Um, and that is definitely a fear of mine. Um, and especially now that I am their, uh, caregiver, school teacher, and 100% of the time companion. Um, so something I've been trying to do with the homeschooling is saying, it's called unschooling, actually. Mm-hmm. It's saying, what, what do you want to do? What, like, what do you want to do? Very genuinely. And if they want to do art, it's like, okay. That's what we're doing today. We're doing art. We don't have to do 
Uh, and that's been hard for my perfectionist tendencies as well because the teacher gave them this ludicrous assignment online that I can't even fucking download because I lost the password t- two weeks ago. Um, and it has to be okay that they didn't get the A on the thing every time. It has to be okay. That, that sounds like a pretty good exercise on, on your part to let go of the catastrophizing part of your brain that says, if I don't do this, my children are going to be living in a tent for the rest of their lives. Well, yeah. I mean, the first couple of weeks of homeschooling, I had them in tears because I, I was like, I was so stressed. I was trying to figure out all these computer programs that I had no idea how to use. They, they're little. They have no idea how to use them. And I'm like, wait, we have 16 more things to do today. Oh, my God. And my son's like, no. And I was like, we have to. We have to. And, and then after about a, you know three weeks of this, I was like, hold the phone. I'm miserable. He's miserable. This isn't achieving anything. He's certainly not learning. We're just checking boxes off of an arbitrary list created by teachers who have no idea how to do this either because it's all we're all a walking experiment. Uh, do you ever pause during your day and love on them just because? I think so. I'm a lovey. Yeah. A lovey parent. We're very phys- uh, I didn't grow up with physically affectionate parents and mm-hmm. I'm I don't know how I ended up being like a constant hugger and, and I mean I make them a crazy they're so annoyed i'm like all the time (laughs) and do you tell them things yeah Yeah. yes yes that's huge yeah that's huge you know know what the biggest the biggest thing as a parent that i've that i've started that i've I've kind of always done that i i feel good about um i i do so much wrong as we all do as parents i think Mm -hmm. but i really say sorry that's huge. Like I did this, you know, I yelled at you. The reason I yelled at you wasn't you. It was I'm frustrated because X, Y, and Z. I shouldn't talk to you that way. I'm sorry. Um, I do think that it would be nice to follow up with not doing that anymore. But, mm-hmm. you know, baby steps. What would you have liked to have heard from your parents when you were a kid? Hmm. I mean, the, the thing is that my parents were so different. So I heard two different, so such conflicting narratives. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I, you know, just that, that there is beauty in being, that you don't have to be exceptional to be loved, that you don't have to be at the top. You don't have to be you know, they never said to me, go be famous, but I definitely became an actress because I was like, I have to do something exceptional. Um, I always assumed I would make a million. I remember thinking I'd be making a million dollars like a year or two out of college on what? I don't know. Just kind of assumed because I'm so my perfectionism. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I definitely felt like I had to be exceptional in order to be worthy of my life, really. Forget about love, just existence. Um, and I really don't want my kids to feel that way. I want them to be able to feel proud of who they are or their, the small wins in life. You mm-hmm. know, you don't have to be writing the next great novel at every given second. You can rest. You can do a puzzle. You can do nothing. It's okay. And their, and their character, you know, um, that... I love when I see parents telling their kids, you are a 
beautiful person. Mm-hmm. You are such a good soul. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a, you're compassionate. You're considerate. You're, you are constantly trying to, to grow. Um, you're curious. Yeah. These are all great attributes for a human being. And, and I think it would be great for, for kids to hear those things because so many of us just think it's a rat race to how much money we're going to make and then that will determine our success. Yeah, I mean, this has been a big smack in the face about that. I think, I wonder how this will alter what we see as success in life as a, as a you know, as a culture. It's changed what I see. You're talking about the pandemic? Yeah, I'm talking, yeah, yeah. just the global, global collapse of yeah. the world. Um, you know, will it really have a sea change in terms of what we value? Um, I think it will for some people and other people. I think it will um, just go over their heads and they'll become more entrenched. And I think there will always be that plus, you know, positive charge, negative charge, sure. tension. It's it's in everything else in nature. Why wouldn't it be in human interaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember, you know, pre-pandemic times, every weekend I felt like I had to go on an adventure, um, had to go somewhere, do something. It was exhausting. My husband was exhausted. He was like, can we just stay home? And I was like, no, that's a waste. That's mm-hmm. a, you're wasting. Like, it would be so profoundly depressing to me to stay at home all weekend you know what i did this weekend Hmm. nothing nothing i mean i napped well i definitely still had the like i'm wasting like time is slipping away Mm -hmm. where's my life going and and i didn't do anything but the freedom and like there's kind of nothing to do even if i wanted Mm -hmm. to has created this a relaxation that that has been a long time coming I try to view, and I have those same thoughts every weekend, but I have no desire to go out and do things. And then the thing that I tell myself is love is an accomplishment. Love is an activity. Love Mm -hmm. is an action. And I think at the end of our lives, we're going to look at how much love we gave and received, and we'll we'll see that as a part of our overall success. But for some reason, when we don't know what our future is financially, it's so easy for that to get lost. Yeah. And like the Maslow's hierarchy thing, like we're like, must have, must have food for children. Right. Right. So that's, that kind of takes precedence over absolutely everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, you know, the top one is uh, self-actualization or self-realization. I believe so. Uh, huh. to, to truly know oneself and to, to feel uh, like you are authentically um, outside who you are inside. Oh, so no matter, I mean, no wonder everyone's so depressed. Like so yeah. few people are getting that fundamental need met, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's true. I think there's a lot of people stuck in jobs. I think there are people trying to get jobs that don't even feel authentic for them and they're not even getting those jobs. I know, I know. I remember that. I remember in my uh, late 20s when I quit acting and I was just, I was like, can I just work? Can I just work at anything, please? 
And I couldn't because it was the 2008 and no one was working. Um, yeah. And it was so it was very like really crushing to say, mm -hmm. I just just let me do the thing to to matter or to, to have purpose or somewhere to go in the morning. And I couldn't to, to feel a part of the greater mm -hmm. stream of life. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a very lonely feeling when either through convincing yourself um, or otherwise through life circumstances, you feel like the rest of the world has started the race and you yeah. are you can't tie your shoe at the at the starting line. I mean, this is going to create a whole generation of people who feel that way. Uh, you know, graduating college kids right now, they can't they can't start the race. And but the hope is again that we reframe what we how we think of that race and mm. what the what the end goal is, right? Yeah. So, what are the biggest struggles for for you uh, emotionally? You know, you talked about the perfectionism and and wanting to control. Um, how how is the are you dating uh, how <laughs> oh, i didn't think about that yeah no <laughs> um well yeah. if you were in a relationship before this so I, we started this conversation by saying i was saying um the institution of marriage as i see it is is fundamentally mm. deeply deeply flawed um and i when i first got divorced i dated kind of obsessively i was like i have i you know succumbed to the cultural thing like i have two more years maybe of being sexually appealing or viable as a woman in this society. Super depressing. Also not true, of course, but right. it feels that way. Yeah. Um, and so I thought I've always placed so much importance on romantic love. Um, growing up, I always had a boyfriend and it was always the central relationship. My mm -hmm. friends were side notes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Everyone said, after I got divorced, you cannot date. You need to focus on you. And I was like, fuck that. I don't even know what that means. Um, so I just, you know, dated and dated and dated. And it was um, awful. And I'm doing that thing now by, you know, both because we're in a pandemic and because I kind of, it's not that I gave up. It's, well, <laughs> a little bit. But um, I just can't picture giving up all that I have fought for in these past two years for a, a dude. Mm -hmm. Like he would have to bring so much to my life right. that I almost can't picture what that would look like. Um, and that's, it's, it's depressing because it's like, does that mean that I have a future completely devoid of romantic love? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. It, it sounds cheesy, but I've heard people say before, uh, become the person you're looking for. Yeah. And that will help attract Well, them. the problem is that I'm not the person I'm looking for. Um, I'm exhausted and stressed and uh, my temper, like, given the... The current situation has not been good to me in terms of mm -hmm. um, depression and, and all mm -hmm. those things. So... It's yeah, and it's 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 also hard to feel like being interested in someone when you don't feel good about yourself. Right. Of course, um, like I feel good about myself in terms of I've built a beautiful life for myself and my kids. Like I'm taking care of us. I'm writing books, mm -hmm. getting the things done. But um, yeah, there's been all this loneliness and all this this solo time. It's 
heard. It, it, it hurts. So much stuff comes out when you're alone this much. You know, my, my thought about the, I've got these struggles, you know, what would a future relationship look like? You know, would, would that sabotage it because I've got these things that, that I battle? My thought is that in a healthy relationship, if you can find a way to communicate those things and not look for, to the other person to be your solution to them, mm-hmm. but to be an empathetic ear right? and vice versa, and to be able to root for each other and not try to fix each other, that that can create a love that is much more complex and much more nuanced and an antidote to the rom-com idea mm-hmm. of what love looks like. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think the rom-com notion of love and fireworks and all of that has very much poisoned the uh, attitude about what a partnership looks like. Oh, absolutely. And I actually think there's great value. So my ex and I get along really, really well. And mm-hmm. so we hang out all the time. Um, and I am so loving that our kids are getting to see this example of a very non-traditional. I mean, I, it's, it still almost feels like we're a couple because we're co-parenting. We're around each other all the time. Um, we're friends. And I think... It has to be such a relief to your children. It it has got to... I And when I think back at how much it must have hurt them, and I didn't even see it because I was in so much pain. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, just in fight or flight mode, just panicking. Mm-hmm. They must have been in so much pain and I didn't see it. But I see how happy they are now. Mm. And I love that they're seeing this weird, happy, untraditional family grow around them. And I hope that the way that we treat each other now, which is which is with empathy and, you know, we don't take each other for granted. Like he says, you know, did you want me to leave now? Did you need your space? Mm. And I can say, you know what? Yeah, I do need some space without him getting angry because we've gone to counseling and, and learned that. And I am loving them seeing this rather than the toxic marriage mm. when we were together. I have to believe that this is better for them. You know, even you, even though we're not a traditional family anymore. Do you ever wish that you had had the counseling uh, successes while you were still married and that you would still be married? Absolutely. Um, but I think in our situation and in many, you know, where, like we talked about the lumpy, the lumpy rug, mm-hmm. it, it gets to a point sometimes when you're so entrenched in each other's lives and, and it's everything. It's your kids, it's your job, it's your money, it's your house, it's your everything. It's like, it has to break to get put back together. It, it can't, mm-hmm. it can't just be fixed. It has to snap. Like yeah. a bone that you have to break yeah. before you can, you know. Exactly. It. I had a therapist tell me years ago that the manner in which you come together after you disagree can become the foundation for a really healthy, intimate uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense to me. My girlfriend and I have had, I don't know, maybe three or four uh, disagreements since in the two years that we've been together. And I'm very proud of the fact that both of us have kept our ears open, tried to keep our minds open, and didn't turn things into the, I want to be the victor, I want them to be the vanquished, mm-hmm. and didn't get you know, no personal attacks, no uh, you know taking each other's 
character inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, emotions ran high a couple of times, but, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the way we worked through them. And I believe that it is one of the reasons why, uh, we have what feels to me like a very stable, loving, intimate, uh, relationship, which is not something I can say, uh, I had ever been, uh, a successful partner mm-hmm. at achieving be before this, but it took, it's taken tens of thousands of support group meetings yeah. and decades of therapy yeah. and making every imaginable mistake that, that, that you can make, but it's been worth every, every hour because it feels, it feels so good to yeah. be loved for your authentic self and to love somebody for their authentic self and to not be bullshitting, to genuinely mm-hmm. love them um, at their, you know, quote unquote, ugliest. Right. And vice versa. I love that, that the way that you come back together is what is the, is the building block of yeah. a relationship. The, the way you argue influences the way you fuck. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't even remember what that's like, so I can't speak to that. <laughs> what? Yeah. You want to improve you want to improve your sex life? Argue more diplomatically. Argue better. Yeah. Yeah. Take deep breaths. <laughs> Anything else you wanna share before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. Let's, let's plug all your let's, all your books and see. your website. So we have um so my website is Ramshackle Glam. Um, I have the big activity book for digital detox out right now. And, and it's a great book. It's Thank a you. it's a fun and witty, and uh, and I think helpful for for people that do want to um, pull back on all their digital d- devices. Yeah, I mean it's fun. It's a funny book. It's like you know, circle the things that are more important than how many followers you have, and but it's mm-hmm. also you know scavenger hunt at home. Yeah, obviously with a humorous element. Um, and then coming out, I have seriously, what the fuck is wrong with men? Yeah, it's a good question, ladies. That's a good and question. Gentlemen. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on, Jordan. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I think I almost cried once or twice. Oh, <laughs> love talking to her. Uh, go check her stuff out. Check out her books. Great writer. Um, let's jump into some surveys. Huh? Is that jolting? Post-interview to just go right into that? Did I knock some of you off your feet? This is from the Love Survey. This is filled out by um, McLean. Or McLean. And they write, I love when my dog lays its head on me and lets out a big sigh and closes her eyes. I love looking up to the trees and seeing the sunlight on them when I can no longer see the sunset. Now, that's a great one. I love listening to this podcast when I'm in a good mood or a weird mood. I love when my sister can just sit with me in silence, knowing that I'm just happy to have her presence. Those are great. Those are great. I love when I'm petting my dog, Gracie, and I just find the right spot and and she passes out like she just shot up heroin just the eyes roll into the back of her head 
This is from the Struggle in a Sentence uh, survey filled out by Miss May and about her depression. She writes, Chronic mild depression feels like the world is on high speed, but I'm stuck in slow motion, struggling to keep up with everyone and everything going on in life. Oh boy, do I relate to that one. That's probably why I love playing that game, Civilization, because it's it makes me feel like I'm getting shit done <laughs> and successfully. It's so much easier. So much easier than life. About her anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder feels like I've had bad experiences with everything and have learned to fear it but have no recollection of the bad memories, just the feeling of dread and fright. About her codependency, it feels like I'm an incomplete person, like without my other half I am open and bare to the world, a front exposed without skin, organs exposed and open for all to see and to bash. And about her suicidal thoughts, it feels like my worst secret and the source of my worst shame. It feels like a secret pet that I have that tries to kill me every once in a while, but I can't tell others about it because they won't understand how I always manage to welcome it willingly or not back into my life. Thank you for those. Wow. Man, sometimes you guys, when you're filling out this struggle in a sentence survey, you say something that, that I've been trying to put into words my whole life, and you just, you just nail it. That's, thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by just realized, just realized creating usernames makes me anxious. And they write, I love when I happen to catch a little bird throwing dirt all over himself on a nice day. A dirt bath. Just adorable. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a bird take a dirt bath. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Orion Girl. She is uh, identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she's never been sexually abused, uh, but she writes, I do remember as a young child having sexual experiences with my cousins. We had to be under 10 years old, and all I really remember was kissing and touching. From a young age, I would write stories with sex scenes in them. Maybe in eighth grade or so, my parents saw the document I was typing and shamed me for it. I felt uncomfortable asking them about sex, so I would go to the internet for answers. Instead of asking me why I was looking at porn at such a young age, they would publicly embarrass me in front of other family and would tell me I was crazy and disturbed. Oh, God, that sucks. There's no... No better way to complicate your child's life than to, to shame them about being human or to not take any interest in something that's a red flag. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. She writes, my father did both emotional and physical abuse. His temper was very short and he would get upset over the smallest things. Once when I didn't clean my room up to his standards, he locked me in my room, told me to strip down to my underwear, and he beat me with a leather belt, sometimes striking me in the face. Fuck. He restrained me on the bed and continuously hit me. I remember screaming as loud as I could, hoping my mom would hear me and stop it, but she just sat in the living room. Wow, that is heavy. 
Any positive experiences with the abusers? I still have a relationship with my father now. I told myself I would never talk to him again once I moved uh, to college. For him, I think he doesn't know how to emotionally bond with me, so he does things like fixing my car, getting me things, or giving me money as a form of support. I appreciate this, and I'm thankful to him, which confuses me since before I was just full of rage, and now I realize he is a complex person who does good and bad. Darkest Thoughts Harming or killing myself in the most extreme ways, like burning myself to death, cutting off body parts, cutting my own throat, being decapitated, or other extreme violence. Oh, somebody just, uh, maybe it's the Grim Reaper who's at the door. I'm definitely not going to answer that. Uh, darkest Secrets. I attempted suicide when I was 14. I remember taking a bunch of pills that I found in my mom's medicine cabinet. I swallowed as many as I could and went to bed. It was so peaceful thinking that I would never wake up and that all the pain and anguish was over. Unfortunately, I woke up the next day by my dad, who was yelling at me because I missed my alarm. My eyes were bloodshot and I was very groggy and nauseous, but I was alive. I never told my parents this. Wow. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. For some reason, it's having sex with white men. I'm a plus-sized black girl who is often sexualized by white men who want to, quote, experience sex with me. I think that I desire to be worshipped by them because of the unlikely attraction. I like to think that I could dominate them and do as I please and they would enjoy every minute of it. It makes me feel almost creepy and definitely insecure about sex. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I, ha I haven't come out to my parents as pansexual or atheist, and I feel as though they should know who I am. I hate going home and pretending to be someone else. Boy, that's such a great topic because, you know, what is the healthy choice? You know, a lot of times it's like we know what the reaction is, is going to be, but does it matter what the reaction is going to be? Should we just speak our truth? Or is it something that's just, it's a personal choice and it's none of their business? I don't, I don't know. But What, if anything, do you wish for? A stable mind that does not go from motivated and excited to self-destructive within days. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, a few. They usually feel really bad for me or don't know how to respond. Very few people sit down to listen. A lot of time, they like to one-up me by sharing how their childhood was worse. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not really any different. What is the difference between sharing your experience so someone feels less alone and turning it into a, a one-upmanship? I, I, I suppose it would be not going immediately into your story, but talking to them about theirs, you know, showing that you really listened and you're really empathizing and... Um, and then maybe sharing something, but not in a, you know, wait till you hear this kind of way. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, somebody who calls themselves looking for good. I love the sound of a dishwasher. I've never lived in a place with a dishwasher, but I am between apartments and staying at my brother's place now, and he has one that I use nightly. The sound of it feels like being near a warm fire, that feeling of being safe and calm. I realized I likely feel this way because of the sound of the dishwasher, dishwasher at my parents' house when I was a child. 
My family life wasn't perfect by any means. My parents have plenty of mental issues, as do I. They did love me and take care of me, though, and I could always count on a healthy dinner made by my mom every single night without fail. She wasn't a gourmet cook or anything, but just knowing that that dinner would be there made me feel safe as a child. No matter how shitty the day might have been, we would eat this hot meal, and then there would be the sound of the dishwasher in an otherwise quiet house, and everything would be okay, if only for a little while. The sofa chair where I liked to sit was close to the dishwasher, so that dishwasher sound was always close to my ear when I started relaxing for the evening. Man, I guess I should try to find an apartment that has a dishwasher, huh? That sounds like a good call. And I love that one. I, I do find it, it kind of soothing as well. And yet I never use mine. I always wash dishes by hand. And by hand, I mean a severed human hand, which makes it a lot more difficult. And then I'm one, when I'm finished with the hand, jam it right down the garbage disposal. But I don't turn it on. I just let it sit there with the stump poking out a little bit and invite guests. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this was just a little snapshot from this person's life. Uh, they uh, call themselves, uh, she calls herself, I'll have a cup of coffee and a crisis, please. Please pull around. Uh, she writes, I once carved the word fat into my stomach with a razor blade. It took a while to heal and left scar tissue for many years. One day I was at the beach and the scars were still fairly obvious. A little girl looked at me, pointed, and asked her mother, what is that? Her mother looked at my stomach, picked up her little girl, whispering something, and turned away. I felt so ashamed that I had exposed this innocent child to self-harm. I was only a child at the time, likely only 12 or 13, but I knew what I had done. I felt incredible sadness because I had brought it to her attention that you can hate your body, also that you have the ability to purposefully damage it. I felt responsible for accidentally perpetuating self-hatred and shame. Thank you for sharing that. And, and you know, my, my initial thoughts are that is not on you. And just by her seeing that, I don't think is going to make her want to go and do it. You know, from what I understand, people that, that self-harm are feeling overloaded with negative emotions. And that's what's driving it, not because they want to try it. That was deep. Thank you for that. This is from the racism survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Jay. Uh, she identifies as black, and she writes... Uh, I was 12 years old and chosen to be an angel in the Christmas play. I was so excited to be performing in front of the whole school. I went to the rehearsals and was told to stand with the other three angels to practice our line and the song. They said to me, you can't stand with us because you can't be an angel. Angels are white. I looked down at my dress and said, but I am wearing white. One of the blonde girls giggled and then the other two, with the other two and pushed me away saying angels are white you're not white you can't stand with us it was then i realized what they were saying i was mortified i can't imagine the effect that that has on someone's psyche 
Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I felt horrible. It was a reminder that I didn't fit in and was different. I had forgotten about this incident, but since the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been bringing up all the times in my life that the color of my skin has affected me. And I think she might uh, be English or Australian because she spells color C-O-L-O-U-R. How do you feel about it now? I feel like this shouldn't be an issue, and why is it still? I'm furious that I'm seen as less than because of the color of my skin, that I have to work harder to be considered an equal at times, or always getting questioned about where I'm from when I've never lived in the country of my heritage. When I say I am from here, just like you, I get treated like an outsider in my own country, and it makes me sad. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? Sometimes I wish... I was white, just to experience what it would be like to not be judged. Sometimes I feel ugly and like I don't belong, especially when a lot of the time I am the only black person in the room. Thank you for sharing that. Man. Sometimes I just don't, uh, I'm just left speechless. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. Uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Dante Alighieri. I think that's how you pronounce it. You know the guy from uh, Dante's Inferno. Have you ever been to Dante's apartment? Super hot. Super hot. Tons of radiators going full blast. I'm always like, Dante, can you at least crack a window? And just rubs his fingers together. Cackles. Uh, he identifies as bi. He's 27, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, my memories are vague. In fact, I remember very little before the age of 11 and have trouble remembering details about my teenage years as well. I recall a babysitter who would watch porn and encourage her children and I to join in. Uh, one of her girls, who was a little older than I, experimented with one... One of her girls, who was a little older than I, experimented with one another, but I wasn't even close to sexual maturity, so I felt nothing for it and remember feeling very confused. I remember another babysitter touched me, but I can't recall how. I'm not even sure which happened first. He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I never knew my biological father. He was out of the picture before I was even born. Sometime when I was younger, I think seven, my mother started dating the man who would become my stepfather. My mother and grandmother used, used belts to punish me and my sister, who was 13 months younger than I, with another father who also left. This, in retrospect, was not okay, but pales in comparison to the stepfather. He made sure I understood that he was in charge and that I had no control over myself and that I was very stupid. He beat me on multiple occasions, though excused it as punishment. I remember one time I was taking a long time doing some chores. He came out and shouted, hit me over the head, and dragged me across the pavement into the house. My mom gaslighted me to believe that this was okay, though she yelled at him about it at the time. I once even had a temper tantrum in fourth grade, was sent to the principal's office, told the principal that I feared for my life if he called my stepfather. My stepfather came in, cried, and apologized to me, and was allowed to take me home without any repercussions. I was so angry and terrified. 
When I was in high school, we got into an argument and he invited a fight, uh, pushing me into a china cabinet, slicing open my arms, which now have very large scars that I lament trying to explain. The physical abuse sounds awful, and it is, but it was the emotional abuse that has haunted me my entire life. It's the voice in my head that tells me to die, that I am unintelligent. It kept me from following my dream to become a scientist, which I only overcame four years ago, where I now have two bachelors in science. I still feel stupid sometimes and ashamed that I believe him still. This is long, but I want to add that I was the only one he beat. I was sent to live with my aunt and uncle for a summer, and they believed I was the most polite and most silent teen ever. They tried to tell my mom something was wrong, but she didn't listen. Turns out that my sister was suffering at his hand as well, but it was sexual abuse. They were close, and I was upset about that. My entire family tried to tell my mother, including me, that we suspected, but nothing ever happened. Not until four years ago, when she finally came out to reveal what he had done. He is now in prison. I'm certain he is a sociopath. His entire side of the family believes he didn't do anything even though his father committed the same atrocities to his children. He took everything in the divorce and my mother lives in poverty trying to support my two teenage brothers who now have to live with the knowledge that their father abused my sister and my mentally unstable sister. I remember walking in on him one time on 4chan I knew he was there for child porn. I told my mother, still nothing. Any positive experiences with the abusers? No. I remember normal experiences with him where I wanted to see him as my father and to like him. Every time I realized he was just trying to manipulate me. Darkest thoughts. I want to die almost every day. The only period in my life where I didn't feel this way every day was in my third year of college where I was sleeping less than two nights a week in order to pass my classes. I even had a fiancé of almost nine years who helped me feel somewhat happy that I would often use suicide to threaten during our fights because of my fear of abandonment. I feel so guilty but never wanted to get therapy because every time I was sent to a hospital or it felt like I was being, or it felt like I was being told I was crazy. She has since left almost six months ago because of my depression and our problems, though I started therapy a year ago. I've tried to kill myself three times since then. Every time, I'm so scared of dying, but just the urge is so strong. Darkest Secrets. My sister and I, when we were 13 and 12, touched each other sexually. I realized now that I was just very confused about sexuality, and she had already been abused by my stepfather, so believed it was normal. I feel so guilty and often wonder if I'm as bad as him. You are not. Um, my greatest fear is of being him, and I fear that I've already acted out like him. No. No, there, there's... You have a conscience. He clearly does not have a conscience. And he, the things he did, he was a child, or uh, he was an adult, and you were a child when you did the things that you did. And you and your sister were the same age. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any at the moment. I feel very unsexual and unwanted. 
What, if anything, do you wish for? I don't know. My dream was to have a family with my ex and to have a happy life, rejecting my experience. Now I just want to make it to the next day and for the pain to stop. Buddy, I hope you keep up with therapy. And I really encourage you to check out support groups too because I think some peer support would be a great addition to to the therapy because that to me is a really healing part of personal growth. Have you shared these things with others? Not entirely. I shared the sexual abuse with friends one night as a teenager, but they didn't believe me. I've only confided in my ex about my physical and emotional abuse, but only that it happened, not what it was. How do you feel after writing these things down, crippled and hopeless, alone and ashamed? Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't be me. Get help before you hurt and destroy your relationships. You don't need more pain. Oh, buddy, I'm sending you a hug, man. I just want to say, you know, you're, you're 27. You have a lot of life ahead of you, and we all make mistakes. You were given zero tools to, to, to cope as a child. And for you to expect yourself to be doing relationships perfectly and not having self-doubt or demons is, is unrealistic. But what is realistic is for you to continue on the path that you're on, which is going to therapy and hopefully bolstering it with, with support groups. And you will find out that that little kid that's been inside you since the day you were born but was trained to run away to stay safe, that kid will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And your sense of self and autonomy and your right to exist and move in this world will grow and you will feel more comfortable in your skin and you will look back and you will go, I am a fucking warrior. Look at what I've been through. I know it's possible. I know it's possible because I've experienced it. There's so many times I wanted to die where I just felt like it's too much. Sending you some love, buddy. This is from the love survey filled out by Bastard the Friendly Ghost. And they write, I love the late afternoon sun glowing through a hill of autumn grass. I love when my parrot tries putting her mouth, putting her head into my mouth or her beak into my nose. I love lying on a hill with my eyes closed while the wind blows over my body and ruins my hair. I love the taste of apples plucked right off the tree. I love being dogpiled by my parents' toy poodle and chihuahua. I love running off trail at nature preserves, leaping through hidden areas and scaling forbidden hills like an imp. I love the gamey smell of a dog's fur that has gone too long without a bath. Well, you should come, you should come smell Gracie then. Thank you. Those were awesome. And then uh, lastly, some more loves from a person who calls themselves Choosing Hope. I love watching people grow, learning who they want to be, becoming more confident and comfortable with themselves and coming into their own. 
I've been lucky enough to witness this in my kids. Parenting can sometimes feel like a kick in the teeth, but fuck does it feel amazing to see them define themselves. I've seen it in my girlfriend who has been through hell and is now learning who she is and how to trust herself again. And I've seen it in you, Paul. I'm late to the podcast, only found it a few months ago. I'm working my way back through the archives, and occasionally my player takes a huge leap back instead of just playing the previous episode. It's kind of a mind tilt sometimes because I have to figure out where we are in current events and what's going on with you, but I love it because I can easily see how much you've grown. In earlier episodes, when you say something you regret or start start doubting yourself, I can almost feel the sinking sensation in your stomach when you start judging yourself and beating yourself up. Now you say you still say stuff you doubt, but it doesn't get to you like it used to. You bounce acknowledging it sometimes, but not getting bogged down and internalizing it like you used to. I feel so much emotions in those moments. I am so proud of you. Listening to those moments reminds me to be grateful for the same in me and the people I love. Thank you for your raw honesty and vulnerability. It's courageous to own your shit and lay it all out there, even more so when you do it with an audience. You remind me how important it is and help me make it a priority to do the same. Vulnerability, honesty, and being real are what make this life beautiful. No matter what else is going on in my world, I know I can find that here. Thank you. Also, I love coffee. Wow. That felt so good to to read. And that means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. And what a great thing to uh, have randomly picked for episode 500 to to read. For for those of you that have been around since the beginning or for a while, man, thank you for... I'm not going to say hanging in there because that sounds like uh, you're enduring the podcast rather than enjoying it. But thank you for your continued support and um, for your feedback, for filling out the surveys, which are a huge part of the podcast and a huge part of my, you know, uh, personal expansion, knowledge and experience. I'm starting to run out of words. I think it's time to play some more Civilization. That is how I should celebrate episode 500, by just playing until I'm numb and my jaw is open and I'm staring out the window wondering where the day went. That's that's what I'm going to do. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just try something different today. Just a little tiny thing. Asking for help. Doing something nice for yourself. And... Uh, I just hope I hope you realize that if you're if you're struggling that you're not alone. And uh, thanks thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.